Uh, I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. So the Gospel of John, the second chapter. Um, Tonight we begin a new set of sermons that is intended to guide us toward the celebration of Easter. We're going to be focusing over the next seven weeks on John's Gospel, in particular, these signs that John tells us about. These are stories of Jesus' actions that are intended to be clues about his identity. So we're going to begin looking at these seven signs from John's gospel beginning tonight. So as is our custom, I'm going to be pairing this reading in particular with a reading from the prophets, so the Old Testament, the prophets in particular. I'm also going to read our sermon text, and then I'm going to read another part of John's gospel, which becomes an important way for us to understand things we'll see both tonight and the weeks that are to come. So would you listen closely and carefully to these words from God's word, first of all, beginning in Jeremiah chapter 31. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, and the oil and over the young of the flock and the herd. And their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry, because I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. And my people shall be satisfied with the goodness My goodness, declares the Lord. And then from John chapter 2, our sermon text tonight, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it, drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then finally from John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, 
Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, in this moment, we ask that you would do the thing that only you can do. Lord, it's the thing we just sung about. Lord, by the power of your spirit, that you would come and open up our eyes, unstop our ears, open up our hearts, so that we could behold your glory. Lord, we ask that in your kindness and your mercy, you would shine light by the power of your spirit on these words. Shine light on dark places in our hearts. Lord, and use these moments to shape us into the people you'd have us be, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I'm working with something of a theory here. As I've began to look at this passage, at these signs from the Gospel of John, I've started working with a theory here And I want to admit that this might be a strange way to begin a sermon by sharing my theory, but I'm I'm going to. I've got this theory, and I'll keep you posted as it develops and as I begin to figure it out. But I've got this theory that John, the Apostle John, who writes this gospel story, the Gospel of John, I've got this theory that he is perhaps the inventor of the world's first scavenger hunt. Let me explain, because that didn't immediately seem to resonate with you. In a scavenger hunt, you lay these little clues to begin to get people excited, because as these clues begin to be stacked upon each other in these different places, these clues lead to this massive prize. And in a very real way, that is the way that the Apostle John has organized this gospel story. See, he's putting little clues out there, showing you something of the identity of Jesus that he's beginning to stack together in order to, at the end of his story, show you this unbelievable prize, Jesus in all his glory. But he's stacking these little miracle stories that he calls signs together to begin to point us to Christ. You heard me read it just a second ago. John tells us, honestly, Jesus did much more than this. But he did these signs in particular, and they were written for you so that you might believe in him. And by believing in him, have life in his name. So in these weeks together, we're going to look at each of these signs with the goal of helping us believe more deeply in Jesus and in doing so to find life in his name. This wedding scene at Cana is our first clue. Now, I'll admit to you guys, honestly, I've never really understood this story very well, okay? 
So I invite you into that tonight. So to help us understand this story better and to help me understand this story, I want this sermon to answer three questions. Okay, this is your outline in advance, if that's helpful for you. I know when I hear someone preach, I kind of want to know where they're going. So here's your outline in advance. We're going to ask three questions of this story. First of all, first question, question number one, what exactly did Jesus do here? See, because if you didn't know any better, it's one of these things. You're, you're like raising your glasses and like looking at it, and you're rubbing your eyes a little bit, and you're kind of doing one of these things, because it looks like he just helped a party get infinitely more crunk. <laughs> do, do people still say that? Question number two. If question number one is what exactly did Jesus do here? Question number two, what does it mean? Remember, these things are written so that we can believe and find life in his name. So there's more going on than is immediately obvious to us. There's something deeper going on. So what did, exactly did Jesus do here? Second question, what does it mean? When he did that, what did it mean? And then third question, what about you and me? Because I'll be honest with you, the Bible is not supposed to be one of these, oh, well, cool, cool ancient story. Because this is more than some ancient story. It has something really powerful to say to you and me specifically about how we find life in Jesus's name. So here's the main thing I want you to hear tonight as we work our way through these questions. In case you missed it, I don't want you to miss it. What we're gonna see here is that this story presents Jesus to us as the great transformer, converter of difficult situations, difficult, embarrassing, empty, hopeless, despairing situations. He's the great converter of situations like that. He's the great giver of joy and abundance in situations like that. He takes difficult things and changes them into joyful abundance. So tonight, you might feel empty and need to be feel, filled. You might be embarrassed or ashamed or in some difficult, hard situation. You might need a burst of joy tonight. And if that is you tonight, and I'm talking to me also, I cannot even put into words the degree to which you have come to the right Savior. And though I cannot put that into words, I'm about to try. So let's take a look. John chapter 2. Verse one, what exactly did Jesus do here? And I want to explain this by just sharing some of the important details of this story. Look with me at verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. 
When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. We have just walked our way into a very embarrassing ancient cultural situation. Weddings in the ancient world were perhaps a little more intense than weddings even today, which might be hard for you to imagine. A typical wedding would have involved an entire village worth of people. A typical wedding would have been an expensive gesture of hospitality to bring those from the entire community, family members, extended family members, all to a wedding celebration. And this is happening in the ancient world, particularly the ancient Near East, where the traditions and rituals of hospitality mean everything. There's honor and shame dynamics up and running in this story. Y'all, my wife Mandy is in the wedding business, and I have been with her to many, many weddings for her work. I've attended many myself, like many of you. I've officiated many weddings in the work that I'm in. And I have seen many intense wedding situations. I can look in this room, and I was a part of some of your weddings. And so I'm not thinking about any of you in particular, okay? I remember one particular wedding, I mean, it involved someone who's not in this room, and um, I remember the family of the bride becoming very embarrassed because the food had run out at the reception. The family begins to scramble around and to see what, it's just one of those things. We're supposed to know it's a, that's a bad situation. That's noteworthy to detail number one here. Look what happens next in verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. The mother of Jesus is picking up on the difficulty and the embarrassment and the shame of this situation. And she goes to Jesus, Jesus, they have no wine. And listen to what Jesus says to her. And I quote verse four, woman, what does this have to do with me, my hour has not yet come. Now, I don't recommend you speak to your mother that way. But one thing to know is that Jesus is not speaking to his mother disrespectfully. For him to use this word woman in this context is the equivalent of how we might say in the South, ma'am, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is an example of something we're going to see a few times in these stories. It's an example of what literature people would call dramatic irony. Dramatic irony in a movie or in a novel is when a character says something, but in their saying something, they're saying more than they even realize. So Jesus is saying, in effect, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And us as readers are supposed to be thinking, Oh, this has everything to do with Jesus. And apparently, Jesus thinks so also because he immediately springs into action. And in verse five, his mother detects this. Verse five, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then we have the miracle itself. Verse six. We have jars 
of water, six stone water jars. These are big, massive jars. They're jars for purification. I'll say more about that later. These are like big, imagine like a 55-gallon drum kind of thing, big jars of water. Each of them hold 20 or 30 gallons. So imagine a big 55-gallon drum, a little smaller than that. There's six of them. He tells them to fill them with water. They do. Then he says to go scoop some out and take it to the head steward. And when the head steward drinks the wine, he kind of is amazed. He says, this is the best wine we've ever had. And most people, most people wait till people have drunk quite a bit before they, and, and then they, you know, you have the good wine. When people drink quite a bit, they begin to give the bad wine because nobody will notice. But you have actually saved the best wine for the end. The steward is blown away by this. But the thing we're supposed to detect is Jesus is taking something plain and ordinary, something that's nothing, and making it into something, something dramatically better than it was before. And then the final detail I want you to see is what John tells us in verse 11. This was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan and Galilee and manifest his glory. And then finally, this is the important part, his disciples believed in him. So what exactly did Jesus do here? Well, in an embarrassing, difficult situation, he acted with creative power to transform something that was nothing into something that was joyfully, abundantly, wonderfully great. And his disciples see it, and they immediately believe in him. So question number two, what does this mean? See, because underneath this story, this ancient story, underneath are important things. It's a sign that is supposed to point us to something bigger, grander, and more significant. And let me just try to lay that out and make it plain for you. First of all, like I just said, he transforms a raw material, something that was nothing, and converted it into something very, very good. This is John, the writer, saying to you and I, the reader, hey, did you notice that? He took something that was nothing and converted it into something really, really good. Wink, wink, wink. See, because in Genesis chapter 1, we learn that the Lord God, the maker of heavens and, earth, heavens and the earth, the earth is empty and formless and chaotic and void, and his spirit is hovering over the waters, and God begins to speak, and he transforms that nothing into everything that there is, and then he pronounces it good. The thing Jesus is doing here looks eerily similar to the thing that the Lord did at creation. Don't miss it. Secondly, remember, this all happens at a feast. Isn't it interesting that Jesus' first miracle involves feasting? It involves making a feast. It involves providing for feasting. 
This is John, the writer, telling us, do you notice his first miracle? It's at a feast, a feast. Wink, wink, wink. I know I look weird when I do that, okay? (laughs) See, because in the Old Testament, there's a thread of prophecy that when the Messiah would come, the great ancient the king who would fulfill the ancient promises, when he would come on the scene, you would immediately know it was him when you saw feasts begin to be thrown, when the wine begins to flow, when restoration happens in the land again, when the old people are made merry and the young women begin to dance. I read it for you from Jeremiah. Whenever feasting begins, you can know that something else is beginning. The reign of God in his kingdom has re-arrived on the scene. And see, these two things have this combined effect. Whoever, whoever is doing that, taking the created order and and working with it in order that it kind of does his bidding in order to make something great and glorious and very, very good, whoever it is that can do that, And at the same time, if he's coming to do that while feasting, then that person who can do those two things in that manner is the, capital T-O, one, the one. Whoever can do those two things in that manner is God himself in human skin. See, it's kind of popular in some circles to say that the gospel writers never claimed that Jesus was God. That was something that later Christians sort of made up. Well, here's the truth to that. Yeah, there is no place in the, um, in the gospel stories where Jesus says, quote, I am God, end quote. He doesn't say that like that. What the gospel writers give us is stories like this that make that claim even louder and bigger and more grand than just saying those words. Here's another thing that this means. Jesus is God himself. He is the creator of all things. And what it means is he is for you and for your joy. Does it ever move and stir your heart to know that the most powerful one in all the universe is also the most kind. Does it ever stir your heart to know that the most powerful one in all the universe who is also the most kind wants to bring to your life joy? Abundant, abundant joy. Finally, that it's purification jars. See, this is another sign of something else. See, later in this story, a different wine would begin to flow. It would be a cleansing wine. This Savior, Jesus' very blood, and it would be abundant provision for sinners like you and me. 
he would pour out, shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins in order that you could know God and therefore that you could know joy. What did Jesus do? What did that mean? And then finally, what about you and me? The promise here is that in Jesus, we can have life in his name. So I want to encourage you and just speak to your heart just a couple things as we prepare to celebrate at this table. Let me put it to you this way. I'm not sure who tonight needs to hear that Jesus can take hard, difficult, possibly embarrassing situations, that he can take those things and he can convert them into occasions for joy. I don't know who needs to hear that. What I'm saying to you tonight is that Jesus can take hard, difficult, potentially embarrassing situations and he can convert those things to joy. That is hard to believe sometimes. It's also worth noting that he normally does this conversion business over the course of time. This is a good time to tell you he normally doesn't do this work in 15 or so minutes like it happens in this story. promise is that he will do that in his own time and in his own way. So much so that one day you and I will know the fullness of joy in his presence. So much so that the scriptures teach us that we will see this winemaker's face one day. And in the difficulty of your life and mine, as we endure with the hope in this Jesus who can do this kind of work, we endure knowing that one day the fullness of joy will be ours. And then related to it, I'm not sure who tonight needs to hear that Jesus desires to fill you with abundant joy. But I want you to know tonight that if you need a fresh wind of joy, it is to be found in him. The promise of this text is that we can believe in him and have life in his name. And that's not just something that's a future thing we get to enjoy, but it's something that we get to have right now in the present tense as we take hold of his promises day after day after day. 
See, Jesus is the great transformer, the great converter of difficult situations into good things. He's the great giver of joy and abundance. And that's all true for you, and it's all true tonight. Final question. Where do we begin? If we need this kind of joy, if we need this change, where do we begin? What's interesting that his mother Mary's words are pretty good direction. Back to verse five, do whatever he tells you. That's where you'll find it. Let's pray. Lord, would you make us into people who hope in your promises, who taste life and joy that is offered in you, even as we endure difficulty. Lord, I pray that these truths about what you've come to do to be the one who can change any situation and bring infinite good, or that you can take difficult things and bring abundant joy. Lord, I pray that these truths would be a refreshment to our hearts tonight, we pray. And we pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.